Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, August 29th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Earlier this week, we received the incredibly sad news that one of our earliest featured poets, Dallas Summers, had lost his life last Sunday. For those who um, are familiar with Dallas and know of his presence on the Phoenix metro area community poetry scene, I would like to pay their respects. His family have posted some information about the viewing as well as uh, services for Dallas, which will take place on September 3rd and 4th. And you can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 383049-300-198-955. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events, four slash three eight three zero four nine three hundred one nine eight nine five five. I believe it is possible to attend a service virtually in case you are located further afield. You can also help the Dallas family with their efforts to fly into Arizona to attend the service. There is a GoFundMe set up. You can look for Help Dallas Family Fly Down to Arizona. Again, that's Help Dallas Family Fly Down to Arizona. Today, our feature poet of the week is Aaron Caicedo Kimura, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Screaming Crows, and my poem, Eliminating Temptations. Before we do that, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of August 30th. Aside from the weekly events I usually announce, this week on Tuesday, August 31st, from 7.30 p.m. British time, that Women's Poets Society will be hosting their Not in Halifax seance with Genevieve L. Walsh and Charlotte Wetton. You can find out more information at deadwomenpoets.com forward slash events. Again, that's deadwomenpoets.com forward slash events. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Writer Center will be hosting their curated conversations with Sarah Lupita Oliveras and Ileana Rocha. You can find out more information at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. Again, that's writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. On Wednesday, September 1st, from 6 p.m. Amsterdam time, I believe Word Up Amsterdam will be returning with their weekly Inspiration Factory writing workshop by Janice. You can double check at 
wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. Again, that's at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. On Thursday, September 2nd, from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Central Daylight Time, True Art Speaks will be hosting their Echo Monthly Writing Circle. It's gone back to physical events, but I believe they're offering a virtual option as well. You can double-check at trueartspeaks.org forward slash events. Again, that's at trueartspeaks.org forward slash events. True is spelled T-R-U. On Sunday, September 5th, from 5 to 7 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their monthly open mic. You can find out more information at Poetry LGBT on Instagram. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT on Instagram. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Poets in Pajamas will be hosting their reading with our past poet guest, Oscar Mencinas, with a Q&A afterwards. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 225-444-009-263-222. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 225-444-009-263-222. And now let us welcome our Poet Guest of the Week, Aaron Casado Kimura. Hi, Aaron. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Me too. I'm really glad to have you on. So you brought with you your poem, Screaming Crows. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, Aaron. Sure. I'd be happy to. I was born and uh, grew up in California. I'm from the West Coast Mm -hmm. in the city of Santa Rosa. Mm -hmm. So I'm from suburbia. Mm -hmm. I did my first round of post-secondary education in music. I uh, did my undergrad at the conservatory in San Francisco. I studied symphonic percussion performance. Mm -hmm. And then for my grad school, I uh, came out to New York City. I came out to the East Coast, mm. and I've never returned to live in the West Coast. I'm here in Connecticut now, okay. uh, where I live with my wife. So I did my first round of education in music, but during my graduate school, I realized that I really didn't love it. I love music, but I didn't love performing music, and it wasn't something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm. I, I think it wasn't something that was in my heart. It wasn't a passion. Right. And so after I graduated, I did some soul searching and realized that I had always been more visually oriented than orally. So mm-hmm. I uh, picked up computer graphics on my own to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And I like to say I picked up a paintbrush to feed my soul. Mm-hmm. Poetry didn't come into the picture until many, many years later. Mm-hmm. How I got to poetry is like, this my my wife was a lawyer mm-hmm. she discovered that she really didn't like being a lawyer mm-hmm. she liked the exercise but she really didn't like the practice of it she wanted to be a writer so she quit the law profession and decided to go back to school she wanted to be a fiction writer originally mm-hmm. but 
all the fiction classes were filled up. There was a poetry class that she could get into. And I knew back then that that was the right class for her. She's such a words person. Mm. She took this poetry class and she started writing poetry and showing me her drafts, asking me what I thought of them. Mm. And I didn't have a clue. I, <laughs> I didn't know anything about poetry. Mm. So I thought, okay, if, maybe if I study on my own and write my own poetry, maybe I could give her some reasonable feedback. Mm. And also around this time, she started dragging me to all these poetry readings. <laughs> and how can you not go home after all that inspiration and try to write something of your own? Oh, yes. And that was around 2009, 2010. Oh, wow. Um, we've, been, we've been married 23 years. Mm -hmm. And when we first got married, poetry was nowhere on the radar. <laughs> so it's been really wonderful to discover this art together. Mm. Um, well, my wife first, and then I followed in her footsteps. Right. And um, in 2013, she applied for and was accepted into the MFA program at Boston University. Okay. So we moved from Connecticut to Boston, mm. and that's when I started becoming a little more serious about writing poetry. She would come home and would say, you know, this teacher said this, and I would write it down and apply it to my work. Mm. But it wasn't until six years later that I, I applied for the program and went through it as well and got my MFA. Okay. So even though I'm an older guy, I, I consider myself a very young writer. Mm. But it's been a wonderful journey. And I think, I think poetry is good for me because of my background. You know, I have background in music, background in visual art. You know, there's sound, there's image. And, you know, those two things are probably what's most important to me in, in poetry. Yeah, they are, They're very much so, especially in lyrical poetry, right? uh, narrative poetry as well. The cadence is much more oral dependent. So all the previous work you did, they were not wasted. You know, they were just preparation for this other major part of your life. Education, no matter what it is, is never wasted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And you know what they say, you know, as one of the ingredients for a long-lasting marriage is finding common ground, you know, things that you can do together and love together. Mm -hmm. So it's... Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story that you both found poetry together. I'm just like tingling from what you're telling me. <laughs> it's so nice. It's, it's really nice to have an in-house first reader. Uh -huh. as well yeah yeah, yeah yeah absolutely now that you told us about how you got into poetry which is one of the more unusual paths i've heard about i was wondering if you remember the first poem you wrote and what it was about wow you know when i was a little kid mm -hmm. i i would poems and i know i have a couple of those around here somewhere mm -hmm. but you know, poetry wasn't taught very well when I was growing up. In general, poetry was not something that I thought was accessible to me, real poetry, you mm. know. And I think that's one of the big reasons why I've stayed away from poetry until now. Mm. But among the first poems that I wrote as someone who wanted to be a poet mm -hmm. is a poem we're going to discuss today, Screaming Crows. Oh, okay. Uh, 
Wow. That was actually the first poem I ever got published okay. in Great. 2014. Okay. Um, I still remember starting to work on it and write about what happens in the poem. Mm, mm, mm. It looks a lot different now than it did when it was published because right. I've learned a lot since then. So. Right, right. Yeah, it's nice that, that you know you go back and you edit and... You apply the new knowledge that you have to an old, older piece. I think it's good practice for any writer. But going back to some something you had mentioned previously about how mm -hmm. when you were a child, when you encounter poetry for the first time in an academic setting, that you felt it was inaccessible to you. What was it that you found inaccessible? I think... It must have been the type of poetry that was presented to me. I don't remember what poems they were, but I remember thinking, okay, this is not interesting to me. This isn't something that's relevant to my life. I don't understand it. It was something that I felt too lofty for me. And so I never returned to it. It was something I had to do for school, and that was it. It wasn't something to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly not in the context of uh, doing something enjoyable with your love, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. right. There's, there's always much more motivation there. Right. So I think this is a great time, if you don't mind, to read your poem for us, and then we'll talk about it. I'd be happy to. Thank you. The poem is entitled Screaming Crows. One tree, center of the garden, the pin oak you silently trimmed and cared for all the years we lived there. Your tree, bronchi infested with crows, multiplying so dense no wind or light could pass through. I shook the tree without knowing, heaved you onto the bed, released the scream of a thousand crows, a cancer in midair. The battering of wings tore through my earth as your eyes swallowed mine. Dignity lost, a Nisei gardener slipped away in the echo with the wind and the light. Thank you. This is such a moving poem. I can feel, even when I read it myself, especially when you're reading it, the feelings behind it, that sense of inadvertently hurting someone you love. Yeah. Um, I always have to be careful when I read this poem. Um, I was explaining to somebody who asked me about in a reading I was doing about how pers I, I share such personal things. And I, you know, I have to separate myself a certain amount from my poems in order to read them. Mm -hmm. You know, this poem is about the worst moment of my whole life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it still is the worst moment of my whole life. Nothing else has surpassed it. And so when I read this poem, I have to read as if it did not happen to me and my father. And, you know, it's somebody else's poem. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm glad the motion does still come through. Yes. You know, it comes, hopefully it, it's coming through in the words. And, it does. Yeah. Both. Both in the words on the page as well as 
when you are reading it, the pauses you take, the intonation of the words. I know this is an incredibly tough subject for you. I wonder if you would be willing to tell us the story behind the poem. Sure. Um, my father, my father passed away in 2011. Mm-hmm. He was 86 years old. Um, he was a, a smoker when he was younger. Mm-hmm. He smoked two packs a day for 30 years. Wow. He quit in 1972. Mm-hmm. So I think quitting that at that point gave him many years mm-hmm. to his life, but he eventually died from lung cancer. Right. He went very quickly. Mm-hmm. It only took maybe two months from when he started feeling uncomfortable in his body mm-hmm. to when he passed away, which was really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, two months before he died, he was up in that pin oak tree sawing away branches and pruning that tree. Mm. My dad was a very physically strong man. Mm. He was stronger than than I up until a month before he passed away. 85 years old, you know, very strong. He was a very sturdy, sturdy guy. Mm. He spent uh, his last days in an easy chair next to his bed. Mm-hmm. We thought that uh, maybe toward the end there, he would be more comfortable in a hospital bed. So we got him a hospital bed. This is in California. You know, Mm -hmm. I flew out to be with him. I I feel so fortunate that I was able to be with my father when he passed away and my mother as well um, four years later. Mm -hmm. I consider that such a gift that, you know, I could be there right with him. Mm -hmm. So we got him a hospital bed. I lifted him from his chair, his easy chair, into the bed. But, you know, we didn't know exactly how bad the cancer was, what it was doing inside of him. Mm. Partly, I I think that that was his primary care physician's fault. Mm. Didn't catch it. So by the time that um, he referred my father to the oncologist, I think the oncologist assumed that we knew that it was bad and he was... He was a goner, you know, mm. that he, he would die soon. But we, we really didn't know. So, yeah, when I lifted him, I think I, I just really crushed his lungs or something. <laughs> you know, it was horrible. And my father, he, you know, I'm such a huge introvert. My dad was, was way off the charts in introversion. He was a very quiet man. And mm. he, um, yeah, he let out this scream that, yeah, it was just, it was awful. And 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 looking right into my eyes since I was lifting him mm-hmm. face to face. Right. And, um, so that's the moment that I, I tried to capture with this poem. Right. I'm so sorry that you had that experience, especially since obviously you wanted to give him the kind of care that would extend his life, that would ameliorate his health. Um, yeah, 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 it was awful. Yeah. Yeah, I felt, I felt very bad for a long time after that. I mean, even we knew that he was he was going to die in, in the next day or so, or, you know, mm. that he was, he was close. Mm. I, 
at the same time, I feel like even though he obviously felt this pain that was inadvertently caused by moving him onto the bed, I think him knowing you as long as he has known you all of your life, that he must have known that you meant well and the pain was entirely accidental. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, in both your relating the story to the readers through this poem and in your own mind, because maybe you never got a chance to talk about it, I, I still think you, know, you also know your father for as long as you did, right? Decades. So yeah. you must have known that he understood your intentions. Yes. That's good. Yeah, because I think with the timing that it was, it would be terrible for you to be unfairly burdened with that for the rest of your life. Yes. Yeah, knowing my knowing my father, I know he would never hold that against me and I, I expressed my concern to my mom at what I had done and you know, she also <laughs> didn't hold that against me. Right. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. I think as children, especially from Asian American cultures. I think sometimes we cannot help but be our worst critics. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that with the writing of this poem, that there was some sense of relief that this served as somewhat of a confessional purpose? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really got it off my chest. And, you know, this is, um, this poem is from my chapbook, my new chapbook, Ubasute. And there's another poem in there that also deals with this topic, Mm -hmm. when you're the son. Yeah. I think it was necessary for me to, to write those poems and, and to get them out there. And yeah. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about the chapbook? Um, oh, sure. I'd love to. Sure. Yeah, um, it's a new chapbook, and the title of the book is Uba Sute, and uh, the book is about my parents, and mm. it's about, it covers their experiences in World War II of being parents, of being newlyweds, of uh, settling in suburbia, mm. and mostly of growing old and dying. Uh, the title, Ubasute, it, it's a Japanese word, which literally means abandoned. Mm. And it refers to this mythical custom, this mythical practice where a son, a grown son, carries his parent, father mm. or mother, to a mountain and abandons them there and leaves them there to die. Mm. And this a tale a horrible tale that my mother told me when I was a little boy. Mm. So I have two poems in the book that deal with this, the first one and the last one. Mm. I remember when my mother told me this. I, I thought it was the most horrible thing. Well, the first thing I thought was, was actually, how am I going to lift my mother on my back? You know, as a little <laughs> kid, and my mother, even though she was probably only 
four feet tall, 100 pounds, you know, Mm -hmm. still she was big when I was a little boy. And so I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. How am I going to carry all the way to a mountain? Um, But then the second thought was, you know, how how horrible this is. I could never do this to my mother. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the book is, um, as I said, I was able to be there for both my mother and my father when they were dying and finally passed away. And I feel so fortunate that I was able to do that for them, to just be there for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they both wanted to die at home, mm-hmm. family around them, and that's what that's what they got, you know. And so, yeah, this book is largely about them growing old and passing away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wrote these poems... Well, one reason I wrote these poems is because my father wrote my sister and me a letter mm-hmm. saying that he wanted to be cremated. He didn't want us to have a funeral, mm-hmm. a memorial service. He didn't want us to put an obituary in the newspaper. Okay, mm-hmm. And then four years later, my mom asked the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, as dutiful Asian children, of course, we had to honor their wishes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, something about that bothered me, you know, who would know without an obituary online that they even existed in future generations. So mm-hmm. I started writing these poems about them with, with the intention of getting them published. Mm-hmm. You know, so on one hand, you know, I can honor their wishes, be the dutiful son, but on the other hand, make it possible for people to know that they existed, you know, and the impact that they had on our lives that's what this chapbook is. And, you know, and, and also writing these poems, it was a way to keep my parents alive in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, and every time I read them, these poems, you know, it's a way to keep them alive in my life and a way to continue honoring them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you start writing these poems as they were still uh, alive or did you start after? Yeah, you know, that's that's a very interesting question. With my father, you know, my father and I were not that close. As I said, we were both huge introverts, so we didn't talk much. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I knew he loved me, and mm-hmm. but we didn't talk much. We didn't, I, you know, I wish we had had more of a relationship. Mm-hmm. But from the moment he got sick, I started writing. Mm-hmm. And I wrote you know, a lot about him right away. With my mother, I was very close to, I couldn't write about her right away. And it wasn't because, I I, I didn't feel like it was because I was like grieving and, you know, I wasn't a mess after Mm -hmm. either one of them. I just, I think I needed, for some reason, needed some time. And then after a certain amount of time, then the poems came. They started coming, and I and I'm still writing. Even you know, this chat book is done; it's published, and I have a uh, a new book coming out in 2022 mm. called Common Grace. And there are other poems in there about my mother and father that are not in this chat book. And then I'm still writing poems about them, right. which I like. You know, as I said, I it's it, it keeps them alive in my life, and I and I love thinking about them and remembering them. Mm-hmm. Most of the memories have are funny memories. Mm-hmm. You know, they always make me laugh, remembering things they said and did, and mm-hmm. which I, I feel fortunate to 
have because I know not everybody has that. Um, yeah. You know, no nobody's perfect. No parent is perfect. No child is perfect. But I'm very, I feel very fortunate and blessed to have had Joe and Hama Kimura as my parents. Mm. Since you started at least writing about your father as soon as he fell ill, um, mm-hmm. did you have a chance to show him or your mom some of the no. films? No, I didn't have, you know, my. by the time I got to my father, he was... I didn't feel comfortable writing, reading him the poem that I, I was working on. Mm-hmm. However, I did share with my mother. After my father died, I wrote a poem about my mother and her dealing with my father's death. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was very smart of me. I don't know what, but I, I did have a chance to read that one to her. She had no reaction to the poem. Okay. It was probably not the right time to read it to her. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think we never know, right? Because yeah. as you mentioned, I don't know about your mom, but your father was very introverted and quite a very quiet person. So, you know, as an introvert yourself, you know how much, how many storms we have inside despite not showing it, right? Uh, yeah, very calm on the outside, turbulent on the inside. Right, exactly. So... I imagine it must have touched her, even if she didn't express it outwardly to you. That would be nice. That's a nice thought, and and I'm and I I am thankful that I was able to share something that's that's such a huge part of my life now with her. Mm-hmm. It is sad that I'm not able to share all this with them. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, especially since you you have such a a good, positive relationship, especially with your mom. Yeah. I find it interesting, right? If I had not known your name, if I had not seen you, and if I had not read, let's say, the last stanza, I would not have known or had a clue as to the heritage of your parents. Um, Mm. So I was wondering the decision to put in the word, is it Nisei? Yes, Nisei. Yeah. Yeah, and your thought process about that. Yeah, you know, with that word, I, I purposely, of course purposely, um, put that word in there because I wanted to, you know, as a standalone poem, um, you know, you can gather a lot of things when a poem is in the context of a book, you know, from the mm-hmm. other poems. But mm-hmm. as a standalone poem, I wanted to give the reader a clue as to my father's background, mm-hmm. put him at a certain point in history. Mm-hmm. When I hear the word Nisei, the word Nisei, a Japanese word, which means, you know, refers to a person born in this country of immigrant parents, mm-hmm. parents who immigrated from Japan. You know, it puts them in that era of... American history, where the Japanese Americans were incarcerated, even if they were born citizens. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wanted to give a little sense of that mm. in the poem. You know, the poem is not about him going to camp, of being incarcerated with his family. Mm. It's about his death. But I wanted to give just a little flavor of that. And you know, many many Japanese Americans were 
in the agricultural world. You know, they were, were farmers. My father, by profession, was a physical therapist, but he was born and raised on a farm. Mm-hmm. He tells told me that um, my grandfather sired all these children just to work the farm. <laughs> so I like to say that you can take the boy out of the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. So mm-hmm. my while he wasn't working, all his free time was spent either in the garden or fishing. But he only did fished on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So he worked our small plot of land, our small lot. You know, we lived in a tract home, so we had maybe like a sixth of an acre. You know, it was very small. Mm-hmm. But he was out there all the time, you know, working the land. He was tied to the land. Mm-hmm. I sort of wanted to give that flavor, but I guess you also get that flavor with the fact that I say he's a gardener, a Nisei gardener. Mm-hmm. Well, I think not to the extent, I would say, of, of especially his background. So I, I'm really glad you're enlightening us about that because because I didn't know what a pin oak was. So I was thinking maybe it was a bonsai or something. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> And so I wasn't sure of what kind of gardening because you know it is gardening is something that that is supposed to be very soothing for people in general, right? Yeah, my father. You know, we had, as I said, we had a very small lot of land, but half of it was Japanese garden, which my father designed and planted. Uh-huh. Um, and the pinnock was part of that. There were three large trees in the back in the back towards the fence. There was a pinnock. There was a pine tree, and there was a ginkgo tree. Mm. And then the other half sort of evolved over the years. When we first lived there, um, there were two satsuma plum trees and a bing cherry tree. And then that area had a swimming pool for many years. And then it turned into a vegetable garden, Mm. and it turned into an apple apple tree orchard, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I call it. There's like just like three apple trees there, small apple trees. But wow. um, the Japanese garden is what was consistent. Right. Uh, right. What, what is a Japanese garden? Just, just I, I'm not really, I don't really know what it is. I guess when I say Japanese garden, I mean it. Um, it's, um, he had like uh, lots of moss, rocks, mm-hmm. Japanese. There was momiji, Japanese maple, which he grew from shrubs. Mm. He created these large screens, these structures that partitioned the garden um, with these bamboo screens. Mm. Um, very beautiful. Nice. That sounds uh, incredibly serene, especially now, right? <laughs> In quarantine, I'm very envious yeah. of any uh, just spotting of nature, basically. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I have no idea how much contact you have or had with the Japanese American community on the West Coast or on the East Coast. And I personally have, you know, experienced uh, just interactions with Asian American communities, different different people from Asian American communities. I mean, we're not all quiet. There are plenty of us who are just loud and obnoxious <laughs> like to me. <laughs> and so 
I, I wonder in your experience if you feel like perhaps the fact that your father's family was in the internment camps, how that affected his personality. I don't know if it affected his, you know, base personality, his temperament, but it certainly, yeah, it certainly um, fashioned his perspective on life. And um, it, it's very difficult for me to say because my father hardly ever talked about it. Mm. I interviewed him once for a high school mm. essay, and he talked to me a little bit about it. But in that interview, he told me, you know, I can't dwell on this or else I couldn't function. Mm. So that told me that it was something very traumatic. Right. You know, I didn't know, and I still don't know a large part of my family, of my, you know, relatives on my father's side. Mm. He didn't keep in constant contact with them. Mm. I'm not sure why. Mm. Uh, one of his college friends contacted me a number of years after he my father passed away. He, he was wondering if my father was still alive and wanted to get in touch with him. Mm. But he said something like, you know, after being cooped up in the camps with his family, something like that, it was hard for him to still relate to them or something like that. I don't know. It's very, uh, very uh, uh, mysterious. Yeah. It's hard to relate, right, when you've never experienced that. Even if you hear stories, survivors who's gone through it, it's it's like reading a book. Yeah. You know, you can empathize to a certain degree, but there is something, that tangible aspect of it you cannot reach. Right. But how do you feel about, you know, just growing up, seeing how... Your parents, you know, live their lives in America and especially given the resurgence of anti-Asian violence and sentiments, especially because of COVID. When I think about what my parents endured, my, you know, my father was in the camps. My mother, although she was born in New Jersey, Bayonne, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. she was raised in Japan. Um, her family lived in Brooklyn for like 11 years before they returned in 1939. So during the war, she was in Tokyo. Oh, wow. While my dad was in the camps, her home was being firebombed. Yeah. You know, and when I think about what they've endured, I, you know, I, it's hard to wrap my head around, but I, I appreciate them all the more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I can never know what that feels like not having lived through it Mm -hmm. um and i know uh, being born in this country and raised in the generation i was raised in i'm 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 very spoiled you know i just read this very interesting article Mm -hmm. i don't know if you saw it in the new york times by um gish jen the novelist where she talks about the difference of perspective in the generations you know her mother immigrated to the United States in the 40s. And so, you know, that generation, she says, believed that the world was a forest and there were full of bears and there was no forest ranger in that forest to defend you. And you had to take care of yourself and fight for yourself. And Mm. mother never assumed that her children would ever be accepted as Americans. 
but being Americanized, she says, well, I hope there are forest strangers. And I, and I find myself in that, in that in between place too. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't, I don't, I think I'm so influenced by my parents that, yeah, you know, I, I don't expect there to be four strangers out there to understand and help, but I'm certainly hoping there are. Mm. Um, and it certainly was true with George Floyd, you know, mm. people came out and made a difference. Mm. You know, mm. Unfortunately, he had to die for that difference to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all the, the other people died around the same time he did. Not only them, right? Throughout American history, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the fact that, you know, more recently there are, you know, smartphones or bo- police body cams that show exactly what's going on so that we can see for ourselves rather than just hear it, you know, secondhand. And the, the frustration that people feel, I mean, especially I think with the past year when the protests surrounding George Floyd's death happened, it was like uh, there were three deaths uh, basically in a row, Breonna Taylor, um, George Floyd, and um, I'm terrible with names, um, the person who I believe was also shot in Georgia, uh, ironically enough. So, uh, and it was just a succession of killings that I feel like just made people realize how incredibly prevalent the problem is. Um, as I have mentioned be- to you before, you know, I was personally surprised at how incredibly affected I was at the the killing of the six, uh, eight people really, but six of them being Asian American women. You know, my being also <laughs> Asian American woman, but uh, not because, unfortunately, because I'm sort of used to a little bit numbed by all of these injustices that I've read about to various communities, uh, Asian American community as well, even before COVID happened. You know, it's sort of like what you were saying about how your parents sort of enculturated you or, or socialized you to expect certain things. And I think in some ways, because of the familiarity with some of these atrocities that we are, <laughs> our expectations are a bit lower or more adjusted to the realities of what's going on. At the same time, I don't want to be adjusted to that reality. I don't want that reality to be okay. Right. And it is to that and also the re- resonance I found reading your poem of this idea of wanting to protect our parents as they did us when we were growing up you know just this idea of mutual protection that I wrote my poem Eliminating Temptations which I'm going to read now Eliminating Temptations I tell my mom not to visit the accountant's office. Rona's run amok, suffocating freedom of movement. A news article said an elderly Asian woman was shoved to the ground. Donald wants Rona to be our fault. 
The walls of my apartment wrap me like a protective cloak whose porousness amidst the chilling draft of side-eye glares. I scrub myself clean of my heritage, but my eyes, my cheeks, my nose tell another story that doesn't allow a really bad day to end in a murder spree that's for a paler lot than us. Someone told me I'm the wrong shade to opine, then flash the peace sign because V fingers can scissor away the pangs of exclusionary acts. When I'm standing at the back of the BIPOC line, I tell my mom there's only so much I can do to protect her. Wow. Nice. Well done. And nicely read, too. Thank you. There's a lot going on in these seven couplets. Yeah. Powerful. Thank you. I figure that you chose this as a response poem because of, you know, the the parent-child relationship of wanting to protect your parents, Mm -hmm. um, especially when they grow older. Am I correct in assuming that Rona is your mother's name? I've heard Corona being referred to as Rona. It's a slang name, especially in the African-American community. I've heard that uh, being used. Great. The first thing that I that strikes me in a poem, I, I want to get to the content later, but I'm always, you know, I consider myself a maker. You know, mm-hmm. I paint, I make poems, and so I'm always curious as to how other poets make their poems. And the first thing, other than the content, that strikes me about your poem is the elimination of punctuation. And also it's structure and couplets. Mm. And, you know, I think the elimination of punctuation works so well here. And I was just wondering, do you usually write without punctuation? Or did you choose that to do that for this poem specifically? So I actually started just uh, eliminating punctuations altogether sometime around the middle of last year. And I kind of just haven't really turned back. And in terms of the structure of this poem being couplets, the way I write is I write whatever comes to my mind. And I forget if this one came to me as couplets or if they came to me as a block. I tend to write Uh as a block of text and then format afterwards. Yeah. So That's interesting. You're the, you're the first person I've come across. I do that, too. Mm. I, I just write it as a block, like a prose in prose style, and then I start lineating it. And sometimes it wants to stay a prose poem. Sometimes it wants to be lineated. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly about how this... Because this feels like it was composed in couplets. It's just so... You know, the first three stanzas have, has that puzzle feel about it Mm. you know three related couplets but yet separate ideas Mm. Um, yeah and of course of course without the the rhyming word and the repeated word right Right. you're right i i 
do feel like this was one of those poems. I have a few poems where it comes in a certain form. <clears throat> I, I always lineate the poems. Sometimes I edit that afterwards, and the line breaks will change. So yeah. even if it's a block, it is still lineated. But yes. um, with this particular poem, I feel like it sort of came in more couplet form. I just let it come the way it does. And then I look at it and I say, oh, okay, it seems like you want to be a couplet poem. Let's go with that and write the rest uh, as couplets. I think, you know, it's so effective how it flows. You start with this incident in the real physical world. Your mom wants to go to the accountant's office. And then immediately it turns inward or the speaker's fears and frustrations. And then it goes even deeper to what that means to the speaker. Mm. And then finally back to the mother. Mm. I think that's a fact of flow. What struck me about the poem sound-wise, even though it's in couplets, the couplets are connected by assonance. I'm wondering if that was something deliberate or was something that was probably intuitive that happened. First stanza, Rona's run amok, suffocating freedom of movement, the news article. So there's that assonance of move and news that Mm -hmm. connects the line. And it happens throughout the whole poem, which really strings the couplet along, which I thought was really super nice. You and I have that musical training in common because I always still start at life with musical training. So I, oh, yeah? Yeah. So I feel like was- the sound of poetry sort of uh, comes as somewhat of a natural the musicality yes. of it. I do edit. In, in editing, I'll be like, ah, that sounds off. Let me choose another word. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I would go as far as counting the syllables. Mm-hmm. You know, to make it somewhat more consistent. Again, if I see that the poem is going towards a certain direction, I'm kind yeah. of just helping it along in some way. Yes. So it was not done consciously, but because of that musical training, of yeah. early formation, I feel like it is ingrained in me. Yes, it's intuitive now. You know, I hate it. What was your instrument? I did a few things. Uh, piano? Piano, violin, singing, yeah. guitar, all, lots of different things. I was forced to take piano lessons, and I hated them. <laughs> I took like eight years of piano lessons, but where poetry is concerned, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that it is. In you, like you said, and so it operates, you know, on a subconscious, intuitive level. Yeah, um, yeah. My, my mother was uh, trying to live vicariously through me, basically, by forcing me to take, you know, instrumental <laughs> lessons. <laughs> yes, I feel your pain. Um, you know, I remember my mother telling me, you know, I always wanted to learn how to play the piano when I was a little girl. And I never had the opportunity, so I wanted to give you this opportunity. You know, how can you fault that? Um, (laughs) Well, I have a comeback. I'm just like, do it. Do it. You're retired now. Do it. 
you know. <laughs> too. Absolutely. And she actually did. Oh, that's um, great. I think it was maybe too late for her or she didn't have the ability, so mm-hmm. she didn't get very far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's so funny. Yeah, then do it. Yeah. You do. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I think I think it's hard, right? As especially again at race as Asian American children from parents who are either forced to be or are enculturated to identify so strongly with the East, like East Asian culture, there is a sense that you cannot talk back to your parents. Um, <laughs> but you know, the I think both my personality as well as the uh, American enculturation in me has allowed me to kind of, I guess, transcend that. (laughs) I don't know if that's the word, or break the taboo and be like, you know, just question that a little bit because I think it is not uniformly applied to everybody. Do you remember The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan? Oh, I read that book and saw the movie and loved both. Yeah. There's that... There's that one scene where June takes piano lessons and she hates them too. And her mother tells her, you know, there are two kinds of girls. There's obedient and disobedient. And there's only one kind of girl who can live in this house. (laughs) Well, yeah, I've always been the disobedient one. (laughs) (laughs) I think in that there's a lot of friction as well, you know, between the bicultural families or multicultural families where the children realize that there are more options out there than their parents are telling them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are. Um, <laughs> since we were talking about music, I had another question sure. about about your process when you're writing. When you're writing a poem, do you read it out loud to yourself or do you hear the music in your head? I do read it back to myself, but I forget because I'm not as conscious about it. If I'm okay. reading it out loud to myself or just reading it, sounding it out in my head. Yeah, um, reading it out loud. Yeah, I, I wonder. I probably do both. Yeah, I think I yeah. must do both. Yeah. Because it, it's not the same. Yeah. You know, everybody has their particular way of enunciating things and their cadence. <laughs> And depending right. on how you feel as well, the, every reading is somewhat different. Right, right. Right in the middle of the poem, there's this very powerful sentence, which I wanted to ask you about, and maybe you can elaborate on. It's in the fourth stanza, the first line. It says, I scrub myself clean of my heritage as if something were dirty mm-hmm. or soiled or something Mm -hmm. that one sentence could probably be 10 more poems you know Mm -hmm. there's just so much in there and I was wondering if you could tell me a a little bit about what's behind that again as both of us as Asian American people growing up in this country probably having experienced different right you know but many instances of uh, anti-Asian racism begin to protect yourself. Uh, At the same time, I also realize, as I grow older, 
that there is a sense of self-denial in some ways. Um, yeah. This particular line, I would say, is one of those where even though it just came to me as I was writing this poem, I, I would say this is one of the least biographical poems. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I do protect my Asian name. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it out of any sense of cleaning it out of my heritage. I do it to protect it because not many people can pronounce it properly. Uh, and I don't want it to be pronounced badly. And so it's out of self-protection that a degree of assimilation takes place. Um, and I think I wrote this line both from the interior view as well as from the exterior view of how other people might, specifically the shooter, might have seen me. And also previous to immediately the day before I wrote this poem. This poem was written, I think the shooting was on the 16th, Tuesday. This poem I wrote on the 17th. Uh, on the evening of the 16th, I had this really scary experience of someone who acted like he was going to hurt me. And my face had been hidden partially, and I think he was looking at me, intently looking at me. I don't know, obviously, for sure, because I didn't actually have direct interactions with him. I was observing him to see what he was doing because he approached me. He was on the other side of the train, and he walked to where I was, and he kept coming around me, coming around me, and showing me something, a blunt instrument, well, a bottle that he had, like using it to hit his hand. And he's of Asian American uh, background. And I did not know at that point that there had been the shooting. And I have wondered, looking back, if he had known and he was looking for someone to take, you know, revenge on or or what it was. I I hope nobody got hurt because of whatever he was doing. I don't know what made him decide to change his mind. It was very last minute. And I kept, when I got off at my stop, I kept looking back to see if he might have been following because he had gotten off the previous stop very last minute. So that was a very unnerving experience for me. Um, And I I don't know if, you know, it subconsciously seeped through into this poem as well. I wrote a separate poem about that experience. Uh, Wow. You know, I I carry with me, you know, we've all experienced discrimination and you know especially when you're a young kid you carry all that with you so Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking oh it's because I'm Asian you know Mm -hmm. Um, when I walk into a new situation into a room and everybody looks up at me I don't think oh I'm the new guy they're looking at me I think oh it's because I'm Asian that they're looking at me Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah all the things that have been going on yeah I think twice about going out that's a very scary thing that happened to you. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I was talking about in the, in the third stanza, right? Is that I haven't gone out as much as I could have gone out 
you, you know, even under, given what's going on with coronavirus, I could have gone out, uh, safely gone out, at least in terms of health-wise, right, and still kept physical distance from people enough, you know, maybe taken more fresh air, more of nature, and benefited that from that, psychologically speaking and physically speaking. Yeah. Um, but I haven't really, I had experienced shunning since the beginning of last year, even before late March from people who would, weirdly enough, avoid me, but go cluster amongst themselves. So I was like, okay, good, good. You're obviously not the smartest person in the world. Go, go be with, you know, like. Don't yeah. be in your crowd, you know. I, I was just like, but still, it is painful. And I've, I am grateful for the fact that I haven't experienced personally, well, I don't, I don't know what the motivations of people are. Some, some of, I've had people react to me differently besides shunning. Uh, and because we carry our face, right? It's not something we can put away. <laughs> Which, again, goes back to this fourth stanza of my, I scrub myself clean of my heritage. It's, and my, but my eyes, my cheeks, my nose, even with a mask, pe- people can see. Your eyes, yeah. yeah. And, and my bone structure. It is yeah. very apparent. Uh, yeah. Which is also ironic because I've, interact a lot with the indigenous community and there is a lot of crossover in terms of bone structure wise and i've heard their community tell in open mics and in virtual gatherings that some of them have experienced anti-asian violence because people thought they were asian yeah wow yeah which again just shows how incredibly ignorant the people who perpetrate these sort of violence are, because, (laughs) you know, if you can't even target your quote-unquote enemies properly, (laughs) like, this is just just stupidity all around, basically. Yeah. So, So yeah. Wow. A lot of inanity. You know that the line I scrub myself clean of my heritage. When I, when I read that, for me, you know, it brought me. Everything brings me back to my childhood, mm-hmm. but it brought me back to, you know, I was the only Asian kid in my class. You know, mm-hmm. my sister and I were the only Asian kids mm-hmm. you know, in our school, or or so it felt like that. I think maybe there was one or two others, and. Mm-hmm elementary school and so you know as little kids you want to be accepted by your peers and um so you know being asian being called names and being you know, made to feel different and not a part of everything you know you there's a certain amount of hatred for who you are that kind of develops or at least in my case it was you know i didn't always enjoy being of Japanese descent, right. you know. Right. Now I love it, but you know, as a kid, I didn't, you know. And so, yeah, if I could have scrubbed myself clean, maybe I would have. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's very difficult, right? Especially as a kid growing up and experiencing that. And and especially if you are in numbers, a minority, right? The one or two or a handful of Asian kids, Asian American kids in your class, then you do wonder because, you know, as your child, especially towards puberty or high school around that time, you want to fit in, you want to be accepted this is where we're looking for our identity right our so it's so difficult um it really is yeah especially especially when you start being attracted to other people mm-hmm. i had this crush on this one girl in third grade and she absolutely did not like the fact that i had a crush on her so mm-hmm. of course you know, i'm thinking the first thing it's because i'm asian and that just, whether it was or not, I don't know. But, yeah, that really kind of sticks with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even now, you know, online dating is something that we basically are forced to do now. <laughs> and it's also become popular over the past decades. Uh, I don't tend to disclose my ethnicity, partly because I'm trying to avoid those, uh, you know, yellow fever people. Um, because I've, I've run into plenty of those who are just like, oh yeah, I'm really into Asian women. <laughs> just like, oh, you mean you're into whatever's in your head? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, wow. so uh, and then uh, on the other side of the coin is that when I finally, quote unquote, reveal my ethnicity, um, uh. there is a real chance, and, and I've experienced that, where people tell me I'm not into Asian people. And then I'm like, I mean, I, I tend to not take it personally because I think of it as them destroying or limiting their own chances of uh, procreation. So I'm just mm-hmm. like, whatever. Um, at yeah. the same time, you know, it does, no matter what, it still is painful. Yeah. Yeah, it hits all those notes that have been built up over the years. Yeah, yeah. Because it's never really had time to heal, right? There's, It's not like everything is hunky-dory now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask you, there's a, a, another line in the fifth stanza, the second line that said, someone told me, I'm the wrong shade to opine. And I took that to mean that, you know, even in the Asian classification, you know, there are different, there's Chinese, there's Japanese, there's Indian, there's Korean, where, you know, there's a lot of differences. And if I read that correctly, if that line had to do with, you know, the differences um, in the Asian classification and what that meant to you. Yeah, colorism is a real thing, and, and it it's pervasive all around the world, partly because of social economics uh, that existed before colonialism, and partly is reinforced by colonialism. Um, in the case of this particular poem, especially the last third of the poem, it's more about, uh, unfortunately, I've experienced exclusion from other marginalized groups. And I have read even about anti-Asian violence that's been perpetrated by other marginalized groups. I mean, predominantly those anti 
Asian violence are being perpetrated by the dominant group, uh, which is European Americans. But there are uh, a minority number that's also being perpetrated uh, by minority groups. And that's true of any sort of intercommunal violence, because I also know of Asian American violence towards, you know, black and brown communities. I've actually had arguments with Asian American people I know where they're trying to rationalize away extrajudicial police killings. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by it. Um, because it's just, you know, on principle to me, it's just wrong. It doesn't matter who it's happening to, right? Right, right. And I also know that some of the very handful, very few prosecution of police extrajudicial wrongdoing has been met out to officers who are belong to marginalized groups. So there are just like layers upon layers upon layers of intersectionality that's going on. Yeah. 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 So how did you feel after you wrote this poem? I don't feel a sense of relief. I hate that it really exists. Uh, I hate yeah. that I had the inspiration to write it. Yeah. I'm grateful that it is out there for people to read. Yeah. Because this is one of the more personal poems I've written mm -hmm. that's also about social causes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, as I said, I really rather there was no need for its existence yeah yeah i you know i yeah i've been trying to write a poem you know and i have i have jotted down some things write a poem about um, these issues we've been talking about in my personal you know, interaction and experience with them, but it's very difficult. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I want to do it for the benefit of the reader. It's, it's very difficult for me to not to be so self-indulgent or portray myself as the victim, mm -hmm. which I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're all in the same boat, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, but I thought you did a really great job with this. So thank you. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think, again, uh, somewhat going back to the Asian American or Asian culture of the humility aspect, right? That, yeah. And then coming to live in America or growing up American, again, the, one of the friction is the community versus the self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And finding a balance that works for us as individuals, uh, again, within a community, uh, either Asian American community or layers of community, you know, Asian American community and then American community as a whole. Um, it is rather difficult. And I think that's probably why I don't tend to write social cause poems that's rooted in the I character. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. So I really, really appreciate that, and 
I also really appreciate it. Your like immediate understanding and comprehension of why I chose this particular poem because of this common bond of wanting to protect our parents, yeah, uh, and our community by extension as well. Yeah, you know, I'm along with that. Is you know. I'm sorry that my parents are gone, but in a way, another part of me is relieved that they're not around to see this. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it would have been incredibly trauma-inducing and recalling for them. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Especially about such personal and, and painful subjects as as both of our poems have been about.、Um, before I let you go, I would love for you to tell us a if you know of any virtual open mics you might want to recommend, and b how people can find you or follow you on you know social media or website and such. I I wish I had suggestions for open mics. I only know of my small local ones that I I visit、uh, now and then.、Mm-hmm. Um, I really haven't participated in any open mics since we locked down.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,、mm-hmm. yeah.、Um, that's not something that I've done, and I, it's something that I think maybe I, I should think about doing. Um, I, I remember on one of your podcasts, somebody mentioned the LA group and the Texas group, and I, I think I, I need to check those out. Yeah,、um, there are many that are online now. So if you feel the desire to go out there, you can safely virtually. So yeah, I apologize. I don't have any suggestions, but if anybody wants to、um, find out more about me, I have a website. It's AaronKaisedoKimura dot com. You just Google my name, and it'll show up there. And I'm on social media platforms. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Again, just Google my name, and you will find me. Great, great. Well, thank you very much again for your time and for your willingness to chat with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I especially. Appreciate talking about our Asian moms <laughs> <laughs> and our forced musical dance. <laughs> yeah, any any time you need to vent, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bring you another episode next Sunday.